Welcome back to Book Therapy. This is Rob Cohen. And I had intended to record last Friday night. It's now Friday, October 23rd, a week and one day before Halloween. Um, I had uh, intended to record last week because it's been a good long time since, uh, since we last spoke. And unfortunately, I couldn't bring myself to do it last Friday. The depression and sadness was still too too present in my mind after the Thursday night elimination of the Dodgers from uh, playoff contention. And as usually happens at the end of the baseball season in which the Dodgers don't win, which is now going on 28 years, it takes me a while to recover from the um, from the letdown that is the baseball season. You know, I read a uh, article that was with the uh, Dodgers after they'd lost. And um, one of the pitchers on the team had said that it's a very heartbreaking situation for the players, not only because they have lost and their whole motivation for the season is to win the World Series and they failed in that endeavor, but that they don't get to see their friends anymore, that these are people who they're with for basically the last um, six, seven months who they're not going to be seeing every day. They travel with them. They take buses with them, airplanes. They eat with them. They play with them, and they socialize with them. And so for a relationship that is that um, 24-7 to just end abruptly, it's it's very um, saddening to some of those players. And when I read that, it, it kind of occurred to me that I feel the same way. You know, um, whatever's going on in my life, whatever's going on at home or at the office, I know that it's not going to be that long before I'll be able to turn on the TV and watch um, and watch the Dodgers play or listen to the radio and, and hear what's going on. So even though I don't know these players, I still think of them as, as part of my everyday life, just like this pitcher viewed the uh, teammates as part of his everyday life. And so for it to end abruptly, um, you know, with a loss, end of a series, uh, the Mets move on and the Dodgers go home. It's the same type of a letdown that the player had. This idea that tomorrow there isn't going to be any Dodgers. Tomorrow there isn't going to be the escape from whatever reality I have into a three-hour, nine-inning baseball game with people who I care about, or at least the players that I care about seeing succeed in the name on the front of the jersey that I desperately want to prevail. So after... They lost last week. Um, it's been a long week of sadness. I've tried to stay away from baseball, tried to stay away from what was going on in baseball because, frankly, it doesn't really matter to me. Um, what matters to me now is waiting until spring training and trying to get through the uh, the winter and seeing all the other teams that are going to win, the, the, uh, the, the, the football teams that are going to win, the college football teams and the pro teams that are going to play in the Super Bowl and hockey and basketball, all these other championships that are going to take place before – um, before next year's World Series, which hopefully the Dodgers will be playing in. So it's going to be a long year. It's going to be a long offseason. Um, for some people, they go from baseball to football to basketball to hockey or whatever it is. Um, but for me, it's baseball and then nothing. Uh, it's baseball and then the winner. It's baseball and then waiting for baseball. Um, but I do have, obviously, the guidance and the – not the guidance. I have the support and the, the friendship of my trusty books – uh, of which I've done a lot of reading, certainly in the last week. But since we last spoke, I've done a lot of reading since then as well. And I uh, wanted to talk with you about them. Um, some of them I'm going to probably give a little bit of less attention to. Others I'll probably give more attention to. But the first book I wanted to talk about 
is the latest book by Lee Child, the Jack Reacher novel called Make Me. Now, if you'll remember, um, the last couple of Jack Reacher books I've read, not really been that excited about. Um, for whatever reason, I didn't think they were quite as interesting or as intense. They felt to be more of a color-by-numbers type of a, uh, of a writing, uh, predictable, and not altogether that exciting or um, satisfying at the end. But it's still a Jack Reacher novel, and I know that any Jack Reacher novel is probably better than, or, or even a mediocre Jack Reacher novel is probably better than most of the other stuff I could be reading at the same time. I really like the character. I really like to see what Lee Child cooks up for in the next installment, and so I read them and will continue to do so. And this book, I kind of teased it at the end of last episode. It seemed like a, a return to form for Lee Child after a couple of misfires. I actually read a review of this book that indicated, or this reviewer thought that it was uh, the best Jack Reacher novel, or the best in a long time. I'll certainly agree it was the best in a long time, but when you get to the point where you've read whatever it is, 17, 18, 19 books, are you really able to determine which one was the best? The way I figure the best is, can I remember what they're about? I certainly remember which ones I didn't like, but when I go through all of these books and I try and remember what they are based on their titles, it's impossible to determine which one was the best. But I will say this about this novel, Make Me. This was the first Jack Reacher novel that I can remember in a very, very long time that actually resonated with me after I had finished reading the book. And that's something that's not usual because for the Jack Reacher novel, the mystery is solved, Jack saves the day, and usually on the last page he gets in a car and drives away, climbs on a bus, climbs on a train, or just starts walking down the highway, and that's it. There is no real... Um, other conclusion to the book other than Jack Reacher is now back on the road and looking for the next adventure or <laughs> the next adventure to find him. But this one really stuck with me and I found myself much more emotionally invested in the outcome solely because of what the crime was. And I don't want to get too much into the crime itself because it really took me by surprise. The whole time you're reading the book and Jack and his his partner, because he always has a female partner, and obviously it's a, a, a revolving door of, of, uh, <laughs> of female partners, but he and this female partner, they travel all over the country. They're going to, to LA and Phoenix and Chicago and wherever else they go, I don't even remember. And so it's it's kind of a race against the clock, but also a, a, a travel around the country as they piece together the details of, of the mystery. But for whatever reason, the mystery itself, what it was, the bad thing that was going on, was really, really gripping, and it affected me in a way I hadn't expected. Now, just to give you a, a little bit of a insight into what the book is about, Jack gets off the train at this city called Mother's Rest, M-O-T-H-E-R-P-O-S-T-R-E-S-T. For no reason at all, he decides he's going to get off the train um, Actually, the, there is one reason. The reason why he wants to get off the train there, he wants to know why the name of the town is Mother's Rest. And of course, as he's there, he determines that bad things are, are going on there. There's some uh, criminal activity, and it's up to Jack and his new partner to find out what it is. When they finally reveal what that criminal activity was, though, it really, really shocked me. And that's a rare thing to do, especially with a Jack Reacher novel. Um, because they're they're pretty formulaic. They do follow a fairly traditional path and trajectory, and this one obviously did as well. But when you finally find out what the criminal activity was, it was so 
upsetting to me. I found myself gripping the pages. I found myself clenching my teeth. I found myself with such abject disgust for the bad guys in this book. Um, and it wasn't really something that I had expected. I, I simply didn't. This one caught me off guard. And if you haven't read any other Jack Reacher novels, I, I, I encourage you to read. And this one's a good one to start with. It's As you may know, um, the Jack Reacher novels are not necessarily in chronological order to be read. You don't have to go one, one two, three. Um, the first few, I guess, if you, you want to start at the beginning, you probably should read the first one, two, or three, I think three in a row, because there's a little bit of consistency of characters. But after that, it's they're all interchangeable. They could go any way. Um, and so if you're interested in just finding out what Jack Reacher is about and really getting a, a story that's gripping, that has a really strong conclusion, and not only a strong conclusion, but a shocking conclusion and one that will actually have some sort of an emotional impact on you, um, check out Make Me. Um, really not what I expected. I was thoroughly satisfied with this book. Very, very um, happy that it was a return to form um, for Lee Child after a couple of misfires. And I really look forward now to the next one because I think Lee Child's going to have a really tough time, um, uh, you know, doing better than this one, although I know he's got it in him. Um, so that's all I really want to talk about with Make Me. I'm certainly willing to talk to you about it offline if you want to chat a little, if you've read it, or you want me, I, I just, I don't want to spoil it. This one had, this is one where I just don't want to spoil it. I, I, I would love for you, if you haven't read it, to read it, and then when you get to the conclusion and when you find out the crime, I'd love to hear what your reaction was to it, because mine was, like I said, I, I felt a visceral a visceral physiological change in myself when I read this book and when I got to the end. And um, that's something that a lot of books don't do for me. And this one, um, for whatever reason, it just, it really took me. So that's Make Me by Lee Child. So like I said, quick one. So the next one I want to talk about, and I only want to talk quickly about it because I'm sure you've all read it. And if you haven't read it, you've seen the movie. It's The Martian by Andy Weir. Um, you know, I was thinking the other day, actually, I wonder if I need to change the... Uh, the name of this podcast from book therapy to, to bourbon and books or books and bourbon, because it seems to me that when I come in here to record, I always have to have a, a glass with me. I don't know why. I mean, it, it's, I, I listened to the last episode and I wondered how many I'd had to drink. Cause I, it sounded like I was a little off. Um, but anyways, Hey, that's what I want to do. I want to drink on and read. Um, but what's weird is I don't drink and read at the same time. Is that bizarre or what? I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because I'm worried that if I drink too much, it'll start affecting my proce processing of the material, and I'm concerned I'll miss things. Um, but yeah, I'm certainly don't have a problem drinking and talking about them. So maybe I'll change it to bourbon and books. Anyways, tonight we're drinking Angel's Envy on the Rocks. Um, I got a really good bottle last week. Um, it's called Cold Cock whiskey and it's herbal whiskey um i don't know what the hell that means but sounds good on the bottle and i tried it with my brother a couple weeks ago at a concert festival we were at and it was really good it's sweet and 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 light not not very heavy at all um but so that's what i think i'm gonna enjoy for a long time to come cold cock whiskey check it out um all right so we're back to the martian um and i did something kind of silly um the book i bought i bought the paperback tie not the tie-in but i bought the the version that was published for the movie so i got this picture of matt damon on the cover of my book and yeah i, I just i really don't like looking at him 
I don't know why. I mean, I guess it's there, there's nothing wrong with them. I just I don't know. Maybe I should have gotten the one that didn't have the picture on them, uh, the picture on it. But anyways, um, I had read this book and I'd already seen the trailer for the movie, so I did have an idea what it was. I'd actually heard about this book a long time ago. I knew I'd been following kind of its trajectory as a as a self self published ebook, and then um, you know as it gained steam. Um, you know, being this this darling of the publishing world and that kind of stuff, and then tracking the the making of the film. But the 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 reason why I read it, it the the story itself wasn't really intriguing to me. Um, I'm not really big on science fiction. I had seen the book a while ago, picked it up, didn't seem particularly interested in it. But the trailer for the movie is really what made me interested in the book. That and by flipping through it, I could tell that the the way it's written, it's kind of an a different type of a style. It's not just a, a straightforward third-person narrative or a straightforward first-person narrative. Um, it's told through diary entries of the main character, um, Mark Watney, as well as the um, third-person narrative of the goings-on off of the planet of Mars. So obviously by now you probably know all about this book, you probably know what it's about, you've seen the movie, you've read the book, whatever it is. I'm not going to go through the, the, um, the story itself. But I'm going to tell you this. <clears throat> Excuse me. I thought the book could be could have been like a hundred page shorter, because there's so much damn science in it, and the science is good because it gives legitimacy to the story. It would be different if there were no science at all, and it's just the author talking about things that happen and and such as uh, the character's ability to you know grow potatoes. If he just said he was able to grow potatoes, the reader would sit there and say, "Well, that doesn't make sense. How do you how do you do that?" Um, so he had to do he had to infuse in the book some of the science in order to give the actions of the main character legitimacy. But to me, it just proved to be difficult to read. Um, the voice of the character of the Mark Watney character was fun, good personality, engaging, witty, but still got bogged down at times with the science. And that was something I think I would have tried to change a little bit, but I'm not sure how. I'm not, that's not my job. I didn't write it, but that's just something I would have considered changing was maybe toning down the science a little bit. The only other part of the book that really bugged me about it is, so the, the theory is that there's a some sort of a, a dust storm, windstorm, whatever it is, sandstorm on, on the planet Mars. Well, these astronauts are, are on the planet and they escape. They have to get away. And in trying to get away, um, they believe that Mark Watney has been killed because he's not on the ship and they see his body laying on the ground. So they fly away and as they're on their way back to um, back home, Mark Watney is able to, obviously lives and is able to get communications out to, to NASA that he's still alive. And what bugged me about the book, and I mentioned it to my brother Phil and he gave me some explanation for why he thought it my, my question was wrong, but Anyways, the book is 366 pages long, and it wasn't until page 200 that there was any discussion about sending the astronauts who had just left Mars to go back to get him. And I know that there were some issues with they weren't able to land and their, whatever it was, but the, the problem that, that Mark Watney faced on Mars was he had a limited amount of food, and it was going to take way too long to get a rescue mission to him or additional supplies. And so he had to find a way to basically self-sustain until a rescue mission or um, or more supplies were provided. And yet, understanding this, and when he finally does make contact with NASA, they are in support of it and they're, they're 
problem solving and try and figure out a way to rescue him. At no point do they say, well, hey, the the his his fellow teammates, they're the closest ones. Why don't we just turn them around and have them go back? Logistically, it may not have worked, but nobody even brought that up. And it was sort of like a um, a, a secondary character who was some sort of a researcher who came up with the idea. It's like, hey, well, what if we what if we send them back? And at the same time, we send them back. We do this. We do that, whatever it was. And so it just it just kind of bugged me that the obvious answer wasn't earlier apparent to um, to the problem solver uh, um, characters. But who gives a shit? I mean, it's still a really good book. And I'm sure it's still a really good movie. I'm, I'm really interested in seeing it. I think it's one of those where it'll probably be better than the book because visually it will be stunning and stimulating, whereas the book to me is not visually stunning or stimulating because I can't picture any of this crap going on. I don't have a feel for size and length and what the any of the, the, the articles of that he was using or the, the hub or whatever it is, I, I don't really have a concept for what those look like. So being able to see them up on the screen is going to be really helpful, and I think it's going to cause me to enjoy enjoy the reading, uh, enjoy the experience a little bit more. Now, there's one thing, one other thing about this book that struck me, and it was something that I was thinking of as I was reading the book, and then I read a, a review of the book or maybe a review of the movie, and, and the reviewer said the exact same thing, that this is an idiosyncratic book slash movie when you think about it, because there's no villain. Um, they're all heroes. And typically in, in books where you've got uh, books and movies, you're going to have a hero, you're going to have villain, you're going to have conflict, you're going to have resolution, and you're going to have some sort of um, uh, uplift at the end or a, or a downlift, whatever, downlift, whatever. Uh, I don't know if downlift's the right word, but some sort of a conclusion will have a, an emotional resonance some way or the other. And yet this book didn't have that. There's no villain. I guess you could say that Mars is the villain, but Mars isn't really a villain. It's just a planet. And it's not the story of a protagonist against an antagonist. It's about protagonists, plural, against nobody, um, against themselves or working in concert with themselves or the triumph of the human spirit, something along those lines. But it was interesting because so many, so many books, so many stories, so many movies and TVs are founded upon this idea that there needs to be conflict in order for there to be conflict, there needs to be a villain. And this book didn't have that, um, and yet it still succeeded. So um, that's The Martian. Like I said, you already know it. You already read it. You already saw it. You probably know more about it than I do. So the next book I want to talk about is The Prophet by Michael Corita, K-O-R-Y-T-A. I mentioned this book before. It had been sitting on my shelf for a little while, and I have known about Michael Corita for um, quite a long time, but had never written, had never read any of his books. Because my perception of his books were that he wrote mostly horror or um, kind of scary thriller types of things. In fact, as I, I went back after I'd read The Prophet and looked at some of the other works, it seemed that there was a, a quite a bit of a, um, quite a bit of supernatural in his stories. Um, but I've I've heard his name obviously. Um, Michael Connolly is a big fan of his, so any. Anybody that Michael Connolly is a fan of, I should be a fan of. Um, and so I, I picked this one up, The Prophet. I think it's uh, um, maybe his first book into what would be 
considered a, a standard mystery or thriller. Um, and, and it didn't, didn't hurt that I saw recently that the book has been optioned and looks like it's going to be made into a movie. So the idea of the prophet is it's um, a brother, two brothers, and they live in a small town and there's a, a murder in the small town and it affects the two brothers and it harkens back to an earlier crime that the two brothers were a part of. That's pretty much all that I knew about the book before I started reading it. As you later develop into the story, you find out that the earlier crime that the two brothers were party of was the kidnapping and, and murder of their sister, and that by virtue of this murder, the two brothers have not gotten along in quite some time, and now there's another murder that seems to resonate with the two of them and harken back to the murder of their sister. And what's interesting is this book, as I was reading it, reminded me so much of the book Silent Witness by Richard North Patterson. And Silent Witness was something I read probably 20 years ago. I don't remember it very well, but I do remember, and it's not an unusual um, or not an uncommon, no, no, unusual, because it's not common, but um, it's not an unusual premise to have some sort of dissension amongst a family or friends that's somehow connected to a, a crime that took place when everybody was younger, and now as they're all adults, there's a new crime that ties the two events together, something along those lines. And that's pretty much what this book is. But it, it got me back to thinking about Silent Witness by Richard North Patterson, which as I, after read this book, I went back and looked at Silent Witness, and I looked at the reviews and the synopsis, and it really does track pretty closely what this book is about. Um, although Silent Witness was much, much longer, and there was a lot more detail and exposition, if I recall correctly. But it, it as I, as you permit me to, to take an aside, it reminded me about Richard North Patterson as an author and um, the many, many books that I read by him where I would have considered him at that time to be probably my favorite author or one of my favorites. He just had a style and a capability that far exceeded any of the other literary fiction writers of the day, whether it be John Grisham or Steve Martini. Not not that I don't enjoy those authors, certainly see Martini, Scott Rowe are amongst my favorites, but but Richard North Patterson just seemed to have a skill and adeptness at taking, you know, the, the traditional legal fiction, legal thriller, and making it into something so much more. <clears throat> Excuse me, and and his books, as I went through them and, and reminded myself about them, whether they were Degree of Guilt or Eyes of a Child, Silent Witness, The Final Judgment, Balance of Power, he 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 managed to really create compelling and thought provoking novels that were really weighty. I mean, we're talking five and six hundred page books. Some of them, as they got into more of the political arena really challenged um, Supreme Court thinking and constitutional issues in a way that, that Steve Martini, Scott Turow, John Grisham, whoever else it is, they're, they're just not touching on. Um, you know, those authors, they're going to touch on the, the run-of-the-mill murder mystery um, with a trial at the end, something along those lines. But Richard North Patterson really pushed the envelope and set himself aside as somebody who was far and above these other traditional literary or legal thriller writers. Um, and and he, he managed to transfer from just the traditional rather mill legal, from, not rather mill, but from the legal thriller involving murder, murder mystery legal thriller, 
to much more sophisticated um, um, books involving appointment of Supreme Court justices. And the, if I recall correctly, like the, there was a, an abortion book and there was a, a gun, a, a, you know, a gun lobby book. And there was a book on, on running for the presidency. And it just, I recall being so excited about reading those books and having the knowledge that this was going to be a book I was going to be really immersed in for a good couple of weeks, not because it was slow, but because it was so impactful, insightful, and dense, and enjoyable. And I really miss that. And I'm not sure why Patterson went away from that. Um, he's really not somebody I see as being engaging with the public. Um, I haven't really seen him be as prolific as a writer as he used to be. Although I did read one of his books a few years ago and was just really disappointed in him. Actually, the last few I was disappointed in. And and so it, it just, I don't know, made me nostalgic for that time. Made me nostalgic for for Caroline Masters or or um, whatever the guy's name was, Paget, not Sidney Paget, but whatever his name was, and Tony something. I mean, I don't remember the names. Um, but it just makes me nostalgic for that time. Makes me nostalgic for those types of books because you don't see them very often anymore. Um, the book that focuses just as much on the legal as it does the relationship. And um, yeah. Richard North Patterson was was really one of the best, so I missed it. But anyways, not to replace him and not to write this as an homage to him, but we do have The Prophet by Michael Carita. But this is a book that takes it in a different direction because this book isn't so much about the murder mystery as it is about the relationships of the brothers and how the two brothers dealt with their demons in a different way. Um, it's it's no surprise, um, and I guess if I apologize if I'm spoiling it, but you find out pretty early that the two brothers, Adam and Kent Austin, are football players. Um, I think Adam is the older by three or four years, Kent is younger, and they have a, a sister. And as they're growing up, um, the both of them are obviously playing football. Uh, the sister needs to be walked home from school or taken home from school. Um, Adam's not available after football practice. He goes to make out with his girlfriend. Kent's not available. He has to, I think, go watch game film or something like that. And so the sister ends up having to walk home by herself and unfortunately doesn't make it home. Um, and a couple days later, next day, whenever it was, um, they find her body. She's been murdered. And that's the, that's the crux of the drama that really resonates throughout the next 25 years or so that the brothers grow up because that was the the event that tore their relationship asunder that they never they were never able to reconcile with each other um kent the younger one was somewhat protected by adam and and their father um he was allowed to basically grow up without having the guilt and the the devastation that was the death of the sister whereas adam the older brother really le lived with this devastation for the rest for, for his entire life and so you have this disconnect between the brothers that's now being brought into the forefront because there's a new girl um, who has been murdered. And um, the brothers have to not only deal with the fact that this new murder is somehow related to them, but they also have to confront the fact that they have never gotten over what happened to their sister. And so I found the book really engaging from that standpoint, although it's, it's different for me, it's it's different and it's difficult. I like reading about stuff that I'm not familiar with. This is certainly one of those books. 
aside from the murder mystery aspect of which the murder mystery is for most parts a a a secondary aspect of the book the main crux of the book is the relationship between the brothers and how one of them was able to move on and the other one has simply been living with the guilt of of the sister's death all this time and and so i enjoy reading about stuff that i'm not familiar although in this instance the fact that the brothers don't get along that there's this poor relationship they don't talk um, the younger brother, Kent, is married and has kids, and the older brother, Adam, doesn't really know them very well, has never set foot in their house. It's kind of a weird scenario, something I'm not familiar with. As you know, I have a terrific relationship with my brother, great relationship with my parents. You've Look, you've heard him on this podcast before. And so trying to understand and empathize with the two characters relative to the damaged relationship that they have was difficult for me. It was, I, I really struggled with that. And, and at times I would be reading thinking, look, why don't you just go tell them you're sorry? Why don't you just go hug them? Why don't you just go, you know, go get a beer and, and pour all your heart out onto the table and get it out in the open and reconcile? And that's just not how a lot of families are. That's not how a lot of siblings are. And I, I guess I should know better because with the kind of practice of law that I have, I see this stuff all the time. I, my brother and I recognize that the relationship we have with each other and we have with our parents is, is unusual, um, that the norm is to unfortunately have poor to mediocre relationships with family members. And so reading about two brothers who don't get along, who have a, a, a history that precluded them from continuing to have good relations it's it's not unusual i should have been i should have been better prepared for it but i i wasn't um but this book did did hit me um with the ending and i'm not gonna spoil it i'm not gonna tell you what happened but it 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 felt unresolved and yet felt resolved at the same time um i'm not gonna explain what that means but uh, if you've read it you, you kind of understand um although it, it did it, it, it did feel like it wrapped up the story of the murder, but as I said, it was just kind of a, a secondary issue. The real issue was the relationship of the brothers, and um, and from that standpoint, I, I really did enjoy it. I'm glad that it was a, a murder mystery attached to the family drama as opposed to just a family drama. Um, the one I think of is, is like Jonathan Franzen in The Corrections, which I haven't read yet. I want to. Um, but that's one where I anticipate it's just going to be family drama and it gets a little heavy and kind of uh, feels as if you need to slog through it. This one had the the underlying theme of the murder mystery to pull the story through. Um, but I but I enjoyed it and I am interested in seeing what else Michael Carita has to offer in other books. Just not any of his horror ones or supernatural. I mean, those things would scare the shit out of me. Um, so that's Michael Carita's The Prophet. All right, moving right along. So the next one that I had on my shelf for a while and I put off reading for a while is Broken Promise by Linwood Barclay. Now, I bought this book not really knowing what it was about, and I know we've talked before about my reading the Barclay books and actually the determination that some of the books I'm just not going to read. And yet this one, his most recent thriller, I guess, yeah, I guess it's called a thriller because it says a thriller on the front. Um, this most recent one, I picked up because I figured I liked the last book I read. I liked the last, actually, I've liked all three of the books I've read. Might as well pick this one up and find out. Now, this one was good. 
and it's set up for a sequel. It was completely misleading. It it was like a maze with all these different lines going all around each other, and they all connect at some point together. And yet, at the end of the book, it's still not resolved. Um, I know that made no sense, but it made sense to me. So the concept of the book is um, the main character, David, he and his son have moved back home to uh, Broken Falls. Now, I'm sorry, Promise Falls, not Broken Falls, stupid. Promise Falls. They've moved back to Promise Falls after David's wife has passed away and he and his son move in with his parents. And he has a cousin, his mother's sister's daughter, who recently gave birth. It was about 10 months ago, had given birth to a baby that unfortunately did not survive. So early part of the book, David's mother says, why don't you go over to your cousin's house? Cousin's name is Marla. Go over to Marla's house, bring her some food. She's dealing, she's having a hard time dealing with the death of the baby now 10 months later. So David goes over to the house, knocks on the door. What does he find? Marla with a baby, about a 10 month old baby, 11 month, about a year old baby. There's blood on the doorposts, and Marla can't seem to explain how the baby got there other than to say that an angel gave the baby to her. Well, this is really bizarre, and it gets a little bit more bizarre from there. Now, it took me a little while to figure out, but Promise Falls is where is, is the setting for a previous book that, that Barclay had written, which we had talked about, called um, Too Close to Home. And if you recall, Too Close to Home, we talked about oh, probably a year and a half ago, about the family that uh, lives in a house that next door all of the people in the house had been killed, um, which really, really was a good book. I really, really enjoyed it. So this is in the same universe as that book, Too Close to Home. Turns out that there are characters who have resurfaced in this book, including the main character in that other book, um, Cutter. I don't remember what his first name was, but Cutter. And the, uh, the mayor of the town, Randy Finley, um, and I think the police officer as well. But anyways, so you've got David who sees Marla with this baby, decides to figure out whose baby it really is because he knows it's not Marla's baby. And by an easy stroke of luck, he's able to track down where the baby may have come from. So he and Marla and the baby go back to the house that the baby likely came from. They get there at the same time as the man of the house gets there. And as David and the man of the house walk into the house together, they find that the mother or the wife, who ends up being the baby's mother, has been killed, murdered, blood blood everywhere, lying on the floor. And thus starts the mystery. Did Marla steal the baby? Did Marla kill the mother? And it just goes in eight different directions from there, all at the same time. And yet, by the end of the book, they all come back together in a nice, seamless, tidy little package. Oh, wait. Maybe not so t packaged. Maybe not such a perfect package. And that's what I really liked about this book. I, just when I thought I had it figured out, it's not quite figured out yet. Set it up really well for a sequel, which I'm looking forward to and will definitely read when it comes out. Um, but as we talked about with Barclay before, he does such a good job of creating cliffhangers at the end of each chapter and then buzzing on to a different story. And for this book, he chose an interesting tactic. He created the character of David and let David be his, I guess you would call his protagonist because David's the one that he has narrate the story in first person. All the while, all the other characters and all the other goings on that take place out of David's, out of David's uh, uh, participation or presence, they take place as third person narratives. 
So you're obviously supposed to side with David. You're obviously supposed to feel that David is your protagonist and your hero. And yet all these other characters, at, at times it felt a little bit like a Carl Hyacin novel because if you've read any of the Carl Hyacin novels, you know that they're typically uh, peopled with colorful, crazy, um, sometimes moronic villains and bad guys. And we had a couple of those in this book as well. But for the most part, it was really intense. Um, it takes place over the course of only a couple of days. Things are happening all at the same time. Lots of movement, lots of frenzy. And again, after almost 500 pages, just when you think it's all wrapped up and you got a nice tidy bow on it, you get to the last page and you realize nothing's been resolved. This wasn't necessarily all a red herring, but it certainly was driving you down a path you weren't supposed to go to all the while something else is going on in the background. So Broken Promise, really enjoyed it. Um, and I'm definitely going to pick up the next one when it comes out. This actually was a, a bit of a weird book because the book came out not too long ago. And I have it in hardcover. And at the end of the book, it's got it's got uh, like a, the first chapter of the next book in it. So um, I don't know. It's interesting. I'm I not really sure about that. I haven't seen that before. Broken Promise by Linwood Barclay. Really, really good book. Really enjoyed it. So the last one I want to talk about is one I just finished tonight called The Great Zoo of China by Matthew Riley. I've read just about all of the other Matthew Riley books. Um, I think there's one I haven't read because, well, what the hell? It didn't, didn't interest me. But Matthew Riley is an Australian author. It's weird. You know, I, I, I mentioned this in a few episodes back where I never really gave any thought to the fact that there are authors that exist outside of the UK or US when I've been reading Matthew Riley's books for so long and he's an Australian author. Anyways, go figure. Um, but Matthew Riley is known for a couple of different things. Number one, breakneck pacing, nonstop action. I guess that's one and two. Number one, breakneck pacing. Number two, nonstop action. Number three, implausible scenarios. Number four, un expected i don't know i don't have another four it's written like a movie and so many of his books are written like they would easily be adapted to movies they're indiana jones ish they're jurassic park ish they're um any type of action adventure movie you've ever seen matthew riley probably draws from all of them and has used them as bases for any number of the books that he's written and so you know you're going to get nonstop action, you're going to get short chapters, you're going to get cliffhangers, you're going to get cliffhangers that make no sense that your heroes should never survive from, but they do. You're going to get maps and diagrams and all kinds of stuff that make you think that this would make a great movie, great TV show, great video game. And that's exactly what The Great Zoo of China was. I can't give it more than a three stars because I know exactly what I'm getting and I get exactly what I'm getting. And there's nothing really new about it. But sometimes a three-star book is exactly what you need. It's the good couple day, throw it away when you're done, have a good time while you're at it. This one actually felt like it was faster paced and much more breakneck speed than any of the other books. And frankly, it's been a couple years since I read one of his books because he hasn't come out with a book in a while. Um, and I don't recall whether those books were as frenzied as this one was. But this one is basically Jurassic Park involving dragons. Yep, Jurassic Park involving dragons. And Matthew Riley makes no bones about the fact that this is Jurassic Park involving dragons because, because the character, sorry, I had to pause because I'm sure you heard the alarm beeping again, like I mentioned last time. Um, Jurassic Park for dragons. 
there's no surprise that this is Jurassic Park for dragons because one of the characters mentions that this is like Jurassic Park with dragons. And that's exactly what he wanted to do. And boy, did he succeed. It's actually closer to Jurassic Park crossed with How to Train a Dragon crossed with whatever that movie was with Matthew McConaughey and Christian Bale when they fought dragons. You know the one I'm talking about. Although that was like medieval times. This takes place in, in present time. But basically, the synopsis of the story is China is so upset with the fact that the United States is the center of the world as far as media and global phenomenon and the, the um, promulgation of societal beliefs and, and what's good and what's not. And they want to create something that's bigger and better than Disneyland. So they create the Great Zoo of China, which actually ends up being a zoo of dragons. Now, what I do like about Matthew Riley's books is he does, in fact, try to make the, the, the scenario sound plausible. And what he does in this instance is he takes the idea of the dragons and he, he tries to make it seem as if they're, it's a legitimate idea that these dragons could exist. By doing that, he, and, and the method by which he does that is he looks at the fact that the myth of dragons over the centuries is fairly consistent, and yet they're so dis d dispersed amongst the continents. I don't know if that made any sense. Basically, what he says is to make it sound easier is everybody seems to have a myth about dragons, whether it be the West, Western people, the Eastern people, Southern people, Northern people, all across the globe and all across the centuries. There are all myths and stories and legends about dragons. And the one thing that's consistent about all those stories is they're all consistent about dragons without a method by which they could transport information and exchange information. All of these different all of these different generations and civilizations have theories about dragons. So Matthew Riley proposes that the reason why they all have these theories about dragons is because dragons exist. And in fact, he comes up with a, a perfectly plausible yet implausible explanation for why the dragons existed and how they came upon the certain civilizations that discuss those, that by which those legends were created. So the Chinese people obviously figure this out decide that they're going to raise dragons for the purpose of creating a zoo where people can flock to to see dragons, engage with dragons, all in a setting similar to Jurassic Park. And as you can guess, shit hits the fan. Dragons have learned things. They start to attack. They start to rebel. And our heroes are unfortunately fighting for their lives and running for their lives as the dragons, and there are at this point hundreds of them, are wreaking havoc everywhere and the gore factor was to the nth degree in this book. Uh, Matthew Riley doesn't spare any any uh, doesn't spare any hyperbole or adjectives in describing the nature and method of the disgusting deca decapitations and um, whatever the other whatever words are. That, they, that the dragons impose on all these people. I mean, there's blood, there's gore, there's crunching bones, there's decapitations, there's faces being ripped off, there's intestines being torn out. I mean, it's just gory beyond gory. 
But this book was a little different from his previous books. His previous books involving the characters of, of Scarecrow, Schofield, or Jack West Jr. This one actually had a female lead character, and she is our hero. Now, the one aspect about the book, and obviously when you're reading a Matthew Riley, you have to suspend your disbelief. But what made this book just a little bit too much to, to suspend of disbelief was the idea that that a character had figured out how to interpret the guttural noises that the dragons make and implanted in the dragons a chip which translated their guttural noises and screams or whatever you call them into a human language. So, excuse me, as you get towards the end of the story, you find out that our main character is able to talk to the dragons and the dragon is able to talk directly back to her. Yeah, I think at that point it kind of pushed the bounds of believability, but you really can't go into a Matthew Riley book expecting to believe everything that you read. Um, You read it for the escapism. You read it for the fact that it's a good two or three days of nonstop action, of implausible scenarios and daring escapes, and amazing, amazing imagination. And for The Great Zoo of China, that's exactly what I got. So if you haven't picked up a Matthew Riley book, uh, my brother actually asked, a few years ago for a recommendation, and I I recommended Ice Station by Matthew Riley. I still think that that would be the one that I'd recommend, Um, but this one was a good one, too. If you want a Jurassic Park type of novel, then uh, this is as good a a replica as you can find. So I'm really not sure what else I'm going to read next. I I got a book um, called The Alchemy of Murder. I don't remember who wrote it, but the idea is that Jack the Ripper has gone to Paris, France, and You've got Oscar Wilde and Louis Pasteur and Nellie Bly who are trying to solve the murder mystery. I'm kind of excited about it, but I'm also nervous about it because it's an author I've never read before. I can't really find a whole lot about the book as far as rave reviews, so I'm not sure what I'm going to get. So there's that one. I got a couple others. We'll figure it out. We'll get back to it. And um, there is one other book that I want to read, and I know some of you have been waiting to hear about it. I did uh, not read. I read it. Rewind. There is another book I want to discuss, and it's called Song of Willow Frost. Um, It was recommended to me by one of you, and I really appreciate it. I read it. I liked it. But I'm not going to talk about it here because my nine-year-old daughter asked to read it, and she did. She actually read it much faster than I did, read it over the course of like two days. And she asked if she and I could discuss it. So I think we're going to do a special Uh, a special podcast that just she and I talking about songs of Willow Frost. So we'll get to that next time. And uh, in the meantime, please find me at booktherapy13 at gmail.com and on Twitter, booktherapy13 or at robcohen13. Uh, This is Rob Cohen for Book Therapy. Thank you for letting me lie on your couch. I will talk to you guys later.